0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Name's Sean Carter. Sean, I'm Rembrandt Brown. This is Maggie Beckett. Nice to meet you.
1: Me too. <clears throat> so, Sean, what do you do?
0: I just finished a PhD in the mental health field. Yeah, I'm starting an internship at the Oakwood, and then plan to uh, do some work in remapping things like that. Though I want to work with discordant cognition. Alice Ruskin, the department head, is a leader in the field. Discordant cognition.
2: We try and try, but we just can't keep up with the technical stuff, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's tough for layman.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Let
0: me see if I can explain. You might call discordant cognition a kind of mental illness. You see, the brain itself forms unhealthy neural patterns, which have to be cleared out and then remapped. In my dissertation, I actually worked on. Two theories. One suggests that creativity is the result of nurturing. I'm still inclined to think that most aberrants are born creative. <sighs> but genetics, you know, they're rather dull. Very little you can do about them.
2: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 25th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right.
0: Fade colour, colour black and white.
2: Under the everything will be alright. Over this past Easter holiday weekend, I ran into a couple of major articles in the pages of our local London Free Press, but originating in the National Post, concerning the nature of consciousness. And to top it all off, a few weeks back, out of the blue, Paul McKeever sent me a link to an article that appeared in The Guardian back in January 2015, Why Can't the World's Greatest Minds Solve the Mystery of Consciousness? Which leaves us with two issues to resolve. One, the mystery of consciousness itself, and two, why the greatest minds can't solve the mystery of consciousness we'll be wading into this mystery and the controversy about consciousness that has been going on since mankind became conscious. But first, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archived broadcasts, and of course where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Now we've talked about consciousness before on the show. But given the resurgence of interest in the nature of consciousness and the ongoing controversies that keep popping up about this most fundamental of philosophical problems, it's time for a review on that subject, which we can start by throwing some of the issues being raised in the media on the table for consideration. Start with this April 18th National Post article, Scientists Spur Brain Activity in Dead Pigs, by Malcolm Ritter, from New York. Quote, scientists restored some activity within the brains of pigs that had been slaughtered hours before, raising hopes for some medical advances and questions about the definition of death. The brains could not think or sense anything, researchers stressed. But the work revealed a surprising degree of resilience among cells within a brain that has lost its supply of blood and oxygen, said Ninan Sestan of the Yale School of Medicine, one of the researchers reporting in the journal Nature. Cell death in the brain occurs across a longer time window than we previously thought, he said. And then the article goes on to cite the potential for medical advances in the field of new therapies, for stroke and other conditions affecting the human brain. It then concludes with the statement, quote, Sestan said researchers don't know whether they could resolve normal whole brain functions if they chose that goal. If such consciousness had appeared in the reported experiments, scientists would have used anesthesia and low temperatures to quash it and stop the experiment, said study co-author Stephen Latham of Yale. There is no good ethical consensus about doing such research if the brain is conscious, he said. Now, that's a very interesting consideration being made in that statement, but before integrating that observation into our own larger analysis, let's take a quick look at the second article I cited. Quote, Does consciousness continue after the brain dies? And this appeared in the National Post, April 30th, by Sharon Kirkey. And the article begins with the author citing the case of a hospital patient who had suffered a cardiac arrest and then later told researchers, according to the article, Quote, that he could see an unfamiliar woman beckoning from a corner up in the ceiling. I can't get up there, he remembered thinking to himself, and then the next second I was up there looking down at me. He said he saw his blood pressure being taken and a doctor putting something down his throat. He saw a nurse pumping on his chest. He accurately described the people, sounds, and events of his quote-unquote resurrection. Dr. Sam Parnia estimates the man experienced conscious awareness for three to five minutes in the absence of detectable brain activity, a time, he has said, when no human experience should be happening whatsoever. The case was part of a widely reported study Parnia published in 2014 called AWARE, the world's largest study of what happens to the human mind and consciousness in the early period of death and you know they talk about death all the time here but there's no really early period of death there is an early period of dying but once you're dead you're dead there's you're you know that's a that's that's a binary situation the article continues Evidence from AWARE and other studies, he says, raises the possibility that the mind or consciousness, the psyche, the self, the thing that makes us uniquely who we are, may not originate in the brain and may be a separate undiscovered scientific entity similar in nature to the electromagnetic waves that can carry sound and pictures. Modern science simply lacks the tools to show it. When we die, and here again what they mean is when we are dying, and dying is a process while death is an end of the process, but anyway, when we die, that entity we call consciousness or the self doesn't necessarily become immediately annihilated, Parnia believes. Transcendental mystical or spiritual experiences close to death have been described for millennia, Parnia wrote in 2017. The article then cites various experiences going back to Plato's Republic and the 15th century Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch along with other such accounts of so-called near-death experiences. So after reviewing several possibilities of the cause of this phenomenon including hallucinations and other phenomenon, The article concludes with this observation, Parnia cringes at recent headlines claiming when you die you actually know you're dead because your brain still works for a while. The whole idea is seriously unsettling and Parnia noted in a recent interview in Newsweek the idea petrifies people. Parnia was young and naive when he first embarked on the mind-body question 20 years ago. I thought to myself, we can probably figure this out in, oh, like a year, year and a half of research, he says. Well, we're all conscious thinking beings. Everything we do starts with consciousness. Yet we don't know fundamentally where it comes from. End quote. And that's how that particular feature ended. And if the question is where does consciousness come from, then as far as I'm concerned, they are never going to arrive at a conclusion because it doesn't come from... Anywhere. And more importantly, the question is a philosophical question, not a medical one. And of course, the observation that we still don't know or understand the nature of consciousness was the entire theme of the 2015 article forwarded to me by Paul McKeever. And this was called, Why Can't the World's Greatest Mind Solve the Mystery of Consciousness? by Oliver Berkman, appeared in The Guardian on January twenty-first, 2015. Quote, Philosophers and scientists have been at war for decades over the question of what makes human beings more than complex robots. One spring morning in Tucson, Arizona in 1994, an unknown philosopher named David Chalmers got up to give a talk on consciousness, by which he meant the feeling of being inside your head, looking out, or to use the kind of language that might give a neuroscientist an aneurysm, of having a soul. Though he didn't realize it at the time, the young Australian academic was about to ignite a war between philosophers and scientists by drawing attention to a central mystery of human life, perhaps the central mystery of human life, and revealing how embarrassingly far they were from solving it. The scholars gathered at the University of Arizona for what would later go down as a landmark conference on the subject. They knew they were doing something edgy, and many quarters consciousness was still taboo, too weird, and too edgy to take seriously. And some of the scientists in the audience were risking their reputations by attending. Yet the first two talks that day, before Chalmers, hadn't proved thrilling. Quite honestly, they were totally unintelligible and boring. I had no idea what anyone's talking about, recalled Stuart Hameroff, the Arizona professor responsible for the event. As the organizer, I'm looking around and people are falling asleep. But when 27-year-old David Chalmers spoke, said Hameroff, that's when everyone wakes up. The brain, Chalmers began by pointing out, poses all sorts of problems to keep scientists busy. How do we learn, store memories, or perceive things? How do you know to jerk your hand away from scalding water, or hear your name spoken across the room at a noisy party? But these were all easy problems, quote-unquote, in the scheme of things. Given enough time and money, experts would figure them out. There was only one truly hard problem of consciousness. Chalmers said it was a puzzle so bewildering that in the months after his talk, people started dignifying it with capital letters. The hard problem of consciousness. And it is this. Why on earth should all those complicated brain processes feel like anything from the inside? Why aren't we just brilliant robots, capable of retaining information, of responding to noises and smells and hot saucepans, but dark inside, lacking an inner life? And how does the brain manage it? How could the 1.4 kilograms of moist, pinkish-beige tissue inside your skull give rise to something as mysterious as the experience of being that pinkish-beige lump and the body to which it is attached? What jolted Chalmers' audience from their torpor was how he had framed the question. At the coffee break, I went around like a playwright on opening night, eavesdropping, Hameroff said, and everyone was like, Oh, the hard problem, the hard problem, that's why we're here. Philosophers had pondered the so-called mind-body problem for centuries. But Chalmers' particular manner of reviving it reached outside philosophy and galvanized everyone. It defined the field. It made us ask, what the hell is this thing that we're dealing with here? And the article goes on to review the theories and perspectives of various scientists and philosophers on the subject, with topics discussed including everything from the experience of pain to artificial intelligence. Quote, two decades later, we know an astonishing amount about the brain, but like an obnoxious relative who invites himself to stay for a week and then won't leave, the hard problem remains. When I stubbed my toe on the leg of the dining table this morning, as any student of the brain would tell you, nerve fibers, called C-fibers, shot a message to my spinal cord, sending neurotransmitters to the part of my brain called the thalamus, which activated, among other things, my limbic system. Fine, but how come all that was accompanied by an agonizing flash of pain? And what is pain, anyway? Questions like these, which straddle the border between science and philosophy, make some experts openly angry. They've caused others to argue that conscious sensations, such as pain, don't really exist, no matter what is felt, as I hopped in anguish around the kitchen, or alternately, that plants and trees must also be conscious. Some argue that the problem marks the boundary, not just of what we currently know, but of what science could ever explain. On the other hand, In recent years, a handful of neuroscientists have come to believe that it may finally be about to be solved, but only if we're willing to accept a profoundly unsettling conclusion that computers or the Internet might soon become conscious too. When conversation turns to the hard problem, even the most stubborn rationalist laps quickly into musings on the meaning of life. Christoph Koch, the chief scientific officer of the Allen Institute for Brain Science and a key player in the Obama administration's multi-billion dollar initiative to map the human brain, is about as credible as neuroscientists get. And get this, (laughs) I think the earliest desire that drove me to study consciousness was that I wanted secretly to show myself that it couldn't be explained scientifically. I was raised Roman Catholic and I wanted to find a place where I could say, okay, here, God has intervened. God created souls and put them into people. Koch assured me that he had long ago abandoned such improbable notions. Then not much later, and in all seriousness, he said that on the basis of his recent research, he thought it wasn't impossible that his iPhone might have feelings. (laughs) Seriously. Not everyone agrees there is a hard problem to begin with, making the whole debate kick-started by Chalmers an exercise in pointlessness. Daniel Dennett, the high-profile atheist and professor at Tufts University outside Boston, argues that consciousness, as we think of it, is an illusion. There just isn't anything in addition to the spongy stuff of the brain, and that spongy stuff doesn't actually give rise to something called consciousness. Common sense may tell us there's a subjective world of inner experience, but then, common sense told us that the sun orbits the earth and that the world was flat. Consciousness, according to Dennett's theory, is like a conjuring trick. The normal functioning of the brain just makes it look as if there is something non-physical going on. To look for a real substantive thing called consciousness, Dennett argues, is as silly as insisting that characters in novels, such as Sherlock Holmes or Harry Potter, must be made up of peculiar substances named fictoplasm, the idea is absurd and unnecessary, since the characters do not exist to begin with. This is the point at which the debate tends to collapse into incredulous laughter and (laughs) head-shaking. Neither camp can quite believe what the other is saying. To Dennett's opponents, he's simply denying the existence of something everyone knows for certain, their inner experience of sights, smells, emotions, and the rest. More than one critic of Dennett's most famous book, Consciousness Explained has joked that its title ought to be Consciousness Explained Away. Dennett's reply is characteristically breezy. Explaining things away, he insists, is exactly what scientists do. However hard it feels to accept, we should concede that consciousness is just the physical brain doing what brains do. So without much further fanfare... Here is the author of Consciousness Explained, Daniel Dennett, from his presentation, The Magic of Consciousness, as heard on January 9th, 2016.
1: Now, I'm a philosopher, and I've got to tell a little joke about philosophers. Okay. How does a philosopher explain a magic trick? So here's how a philosopher explains how the... How many of you have seen The Magician Saw the Lady in Half? All right, good. So here's how the philosopher explains that. Well, you see, the magician doesn't saw the lady in half. He just makes it seem as if he saws her in half. You say, well, yeah, uh, how does he do that? Oh, well, that's not my department. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's it's technicalities. that's, That's somebody else's job. So. That's how philosophers explain a magic trick. At least that's how many philosophers would explain a magic trick. But not all. Here's a philosopher, Lee Siegel, who's also himself an expert magician. And he's written a wonderful book about street magic in India. He's an expert uh, in Indian religions and uh, philosophy. He's at the University of Hawaii. And in this book, he follows, he lives with the street magicians who are, that's a caste in India. And you learn a lot about how magic arose out of Indian street magic. It's a a lovely book. And in it, there's a passage which has become a sort of talisman for me, a sort of passage that I love to quote. He says, I'm writing a book on magic. I explain, and I'm asked, real magic? By real magic, people mean miracles, thaumaturgical acts, supernatural powers. No, I answer. Conjuring tricks, not real magic. In other words, real magic, in other words, refers to the magic that's not real, while the magic that's real, that can actually be done, is not real magic. I think, bingo, this is the story of my life. Because the same thing is, very, is true of consciousness for many people. Real consciousness, in the eyes of some people, isn't something you could possibly explain. There are even scientists who think, almost by definition, consciousness defies explanation. It is beyond human explanation. If you've explained anything, what you haven't explained is consciousness. Because they think consciousness is real magic. consciousness is both the most familiar thing to all of us and one of the most mysterious. What could be more familiar to you than your own stream of consciousness? And yet, how on earth could it fit inside your brain? How on earth could what goes on in your brain actually account for what goes on? What we see here is the cartoonist's wonderful convention, the thought balloon or thought bubble. And I think everybody understands immediately what's going on here. What appears in the balloon is the stream of consciousness, as it were, of the person that you see from whom it is emanating. My, my favorite example of a thought balloon is this brilliant one from Saul Steinberg. This was a New Yorker cover many years ago. And what we see is that the gentleman over here on the left is looking at a painting in a museum, and he's identifying it as a painting by Georges Braque. And the word Braque reminds him of the word Baroque, which reminds him of the word barrack, and then bark, and then poodle. And then we're off to the races, and we get his stream of consciousness unfolding with all of its associations. And it's not just words. There's colors and shapes. Uh, and uh, even the genius of Steinberg wasn't able to represent recalled odors, aromas, and music, but we can imagine them being in there, too. Now, then what's the problem? Well. The problem is, vivid and brilliant as this representation of this man's consciousness is, it's metaphorical. This is a large, systematic metaphor for what's going on in his head. So the problem of consciousness, I would say, is if that's the metaphorical truth about what's going on in the man's head, what's the literal truth that makes the metaphor so good? What's actually happening between his ears that makes this such a brilliant metaphorical description of what's going on in the world. Well, you might say, what's the problem? Why is there any problem at all? Well, you'll notice that Steinberg has represented the man as a sort of wonderful pointillist collection of dots. And that's brilliant, because it reminds us that what we are, what you are, what I am, is a huge collection of cells. About 100 trillion at most recent count. 100 trillion cells. That's what you are. Not a single one of those is conscious. Not a single one of those knows knows who George Brock is. Not a single one of those knows what Kilimanjaro is. How can a collection of mindless, unconscious, little robotic cells work together to create human consciousness as revealed in that Beautiful metaphor. That's the problem of consciousness. And it's really quite severely puzzling. So we have a brain. And we want to understand that the brain is a computational system consisting of billions, or let's say, who's counting, trillions of registers. Register is a term from computer science. And a register is simply a memory location where you can store a number, really, a value. And it might be zero, or it might be one, or it might be 375, or it might be a million and three. A register is simply an address with a content, and the content is always a number. That is to say, it's always a magnitude of something. So maximally bland computationalism says, what the brain is, is a massively parallel, indeed 3D parallel, collection of registers. In this slide we see maybe 50 or 100 of them, little green registers, but we're really to understand that those stand in for literally trillions of registers in your brain. And each one of them has or can have a value stored in it, and we're going to suppose that the values in the registers can change as a function of the values in other registers. Some of them right nearby, right next door, and some of them perhaps at some distance. If there is an axonal connection from some distance connecting a bunch of registers together, then the value uh, at some distance away may affect the value here. And we just suppose that the values are constantly shifting as a function of the values of other registers. And we explain all this just in terms of physics, just just. Uh, garden variety, causal transactions between registers. Now, I call this maximally bland computationalism because it makes no claims about the nature of the architecture. It's not a serial architecture. Well, it's massively parallel. Uh, Is it asynchronous or synchronous? Well, presumably it's asynchronous. And the registers can be A neuron, you could consider that a register, or you could consider it as made up of hundreds or thousands of registers. Subcellular activity can be captured in this picture. Neuromodulator activity can be captured in this picture. Thus, if neuromodulators are being diffused through a part of the brain, there's a computational account of that. In fact, it's called diffusive computation. And there are models which look at that. So the fact that we're talking about A wet brains with diffusion doesn't mean it's not computational. We can even countenance field effects if they matter. That can all be modeled as more interactions uh, where perhaps distance is really important, but the effects of one register on another can be calculated. Even quantum effects if you think that matters. I don't, but there are those that do. So maximally bland computationalism is is a framework which can incorporate just about every, any serious view, I think, that anybody holds anywhere in the world today about how the brain works. Just cast into the mold of computationalism, Because the basic underlying idea is that the brain's job is to get the body that it resides in through life by computing the best thing to do next, given the information that it's taking in from the world. That's what brains are for. They're not for cooling the blood. They're not for, for uh, purifying the blood. They're not a ventilation system. They're, they're a control system. And hence, they're amenable to a computational analysis, as long as we're suitably bland about what we mean by computational.
2: Let me take a moment to briefly address some of the more pertinent questions that we heard raised in some of the considerations before the break. For example, what makes human beings more complex than robots? We ourselves are human beings, not robots. We build robots. Robots do not build us, and they did not create us. We as human beings evolved naturally in nature, with greater complexities, plus biological sensory input, a point that speaks to the whole issue of pain and pleasure. Human beings, unlike robots, have the capacity for reason, something that transcends mere logic and process, and thus we can plan for a future, and even for possibilities of futures that we know now do not exist. Human beings have purpose, not merely function, though leftist ideologies would have us mere functions of their purposes. You know what I mean? And then some of the questions posed by David Chalmers, such as, how do you know to jerk your hand away from scalding water, or hear your name spoken across the room at a noisy party? Well, when I hear questions like that, I really have to scratch my head, because first, we don't quote-unquote know to jerk our hands away from scalding water. We feel it. And therefore we recoil from what we call pain. A small child or a baby would be quite willing to put his hand in the scalding water or even touch a fire. You ever seen a child approach a fire for the first time? They're willing to put their hand right straight into it. They don't know that it's hot. And that's a lesson learned, quote-unquote, through the experience of pain. We can learn from this experience by wanting to avoid future pain and by trying to avoid touching scalding water. But unless we already know that the water is scalding and how it feels, we can still only learn that lesson by experiencing it, not by knowing it or by learning it. Another question, how do we hear our name spoken across the room at a noisy party? Well, as far as I've always understood, we do it by using our sensory perception of hearing. Ears, you know. We don't, quote-unquote, hear our names as some indiscriminate noise. We recognize our names. And if our hearing isn't very good anymore, we won't hear our names spoken across the room or recognize them. Moreover, and this is important, we can choose to focus on our names or on any information or gossip even at a particular party that might interest us. Because we can focus. Freedom of choice is yet another one of those complexities that humans possess that mere machines do not, although it can be made to appear that they do. The fact of a noisy party is a mere distraction, I think, from from the main question. How is the question any different if it was a quiet party? (laughs) Of course, none of this speaks to the mechanism by which we're all able to do such things. But even when solved to the tiniest detail, nothing will be resolved as to the meaning or the why of the greater whole. Then there's that hard problem of consciousness when posed through the question, why on earth should all those complicated brain processes feel like anything from the inside? (laughs) Or to put it more bluntly, why do human beings even have feelings as opposed to having no feelings? This isn't even a question about the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness might be better addressed by asking why am I even asking these questions? (laughs) Why do I want to know anything about my feelings at all? Now that's a hard problem. But before asking why complicated brain processes should result in feelings, what's the alternative? And why should you expect any alternative? Moreover, a complicated brain process by itself does not necessarily result in feelings. And here it's not clear whether they're talking about sensory feelings or emotional ones. We still require a biological form that is capable of generating pain and or pleasure in order to have any feelings at all. Seems to me that evolution and the nature of life itself would help explain the necessity of pain and pleasure. To motivate us, for heaven's sakes, to take the appropriate actions necessary to avoid one and pursue the other. Otherwise, in the absence of each, why would we even move at all or take any kind of action? Why act if we're already content? For that matter, can we even be content if we don't have feelings? I mean, without feelings, would we even just sit there? I don't know. Can't answer those questions. They're not real. We all know that the very first pain we will all experience if we fail to act is a pain we all know that we call hunger. That pain is our motivator in the absence of knowledge or mere computation. And unlike machines, which come into being with all of their programming and so-called quote-unquote knowledge already inside them and made a part of their mechanism, human beings are all born completely ignorant and incapable of understanding anything, even the, the heat of fire. And even pain and pleasure are not quote-unquote understood, they are experienced, they are felt. And everything humans do has to be learned from scratch. It's the nature of life. And that we should have these sophisticated scientists ask these questions. I know they're trying to figure out the process, but it's the wrong question. As human beings, we are greater than simply the sum of our parts. Science is always looking at the parts and almost never at the whole, because that requires abstraction and the ability to appreciate and recognize the greater whole. To science, the mechanisms of your inside is no different from similar mechanisms found elsewhere, and even those can't be explained by asking a question like why. There is no why, because that implies purpose and intent and objectives. To ask why gravity causes the ball to fall to the ground, rather than to fly up into the air, can never be answered, because it will always beg yet another why. Why? Well, the ball falls down because of the force of gravity, or because of the curvature of the space-time continuum, or whatever. Well then, why does the force of gravity attract rather than repel? Or why is there a curvature in the space-time continuum instead of it being straight? I mean, these are the next unanswerable questions, because even when discovered or answered, there will always be another why. In the questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how, Only the question why steps outside any kind of scientific or mathematical analysis. The rest of the questions all pertain, in some sense, to the law of identity and or to function. That is, why, (laughs) the why is not really a scientific question at all. Now, getting back to philosopher Daniel Dennett, who will be coming up again next, let's be clear... He's not denying the existence of consciousness. He is refuting the incorrect concept of consciousness as, quote, most people know it, end quote, as magic, as something beyond its physical boundaries and existence. It is not real consciousness, in the same way that real magic isn't.
1: I can't prove that my way is right, but I can at least tease your imagination some and give you an example which might at least get you to suspend judgment about the way that I'm going with this. And it is another magic trick. And this is a trick called the tuned deck. Now, there was a time when I could actually do this trick. It's a card trick. I can't do it anymore, so I'm just going to fake it just so you get an idea of what it looks like. Now, I learned about this trick from John Hilliard in his book card magic. This is not a book you find in your library. This is one of those privately printed books for magicians only. And Hilliard writes as follows. For many years, Mr. Ralph Hull, the famous card wizard from Crooksville, Ohio, has completely bewildered not only the general public, but also amateur conjurers, card connoisseurs, and professional magicians with a series of card tricks which he is pleased to call the Tuned Deck. Okay, now I'm going to fake the tuned deck. It goes sort of like this. Boys, I have a new trick. Now this is to his fellow magicians, right? Boys, I have a new trick. It's called the tuned deck. Here is my tuned deck. It is tuned. I listen to the vibrations. Buzz, 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 buzz. And by those vibrations I can tell uh, exactly which card is here, is there because of the different tuning of the vibrations. Here, pick a card, any card. The card is picked. It goes back into the deck. There's some more a some more buzz-buzz, and then the card is produced. That's it. Now, Hull did this trick hundreds of times. Nobody ever got it. He would sit with his sleeves rolled up and perform the trick for fellow magicians 20, 30 times. Nobody ever got it. They tried to buy the trick from him. He wouldn't sell it. Magicians do sell tricks. Late in his life, he gave the trick and his account of it to Hilliard, his friend Hilliard, and Hilliard published it in his book. And here's a little bit of what what Hull says. He says, for years I've performed this effect and have shown it to magicians and amateurs by the hundred, and to the very best of my knowledge, not one of them ever figured out the secret. The boys have all looked for something too hard. Oh, thank you for saying too hard. Now I'm going to tell you the secret of the Tune Deck. Are you ready? The Tune Deck, like many great magic tricks, the trick is over before you think it's even begun. In this case, the trick consists in its entirety in the name of the trick the tuned deck. Moreover, in one of the words in the title of the trick. Which word? No, not deck. (laughs) Tuned? No, the. I told you the trick is over before you even think it's begun. Here is what Hull was doing. Remember how it starts? Boys, I have a new trick. It's called the tuned deck. The trick is now over. All the palaver with buzz buzz and and vibrations, we know that's not the trick. What does he do? He does a standard card presentation trick that everybody there knows. The Cards come back and his fellow magicians think, you know, couldn't he be doing a Type A trick? I'm not going to give away any more magic. So they're good magicians, they know how to prevent a Type A trick. So they're obstreperous in the right way, and so they prevent him from doing, they're testing their hypothesis that it's a type A trick. He still does the trick. Hmm, they say, could he be doing a type B trick? We could prevent that by doing, so they do what, it, what they could do to prevent a type B trick, he still does the trick. Gee, could it be a type C trick? Maybe, they test that hypothesis, he still does the trick. What's left, could it be a type D trick? They test that. No matter what hypothesis they test, he always does the trick. They can't prevent him from doing the trick. What's happened is, it was a type A trick. Then when they test that, he does a type B trick. When he tests B, he does a type C trick. When When they test that, he goes back and he does a type A trick. He realized he could always do one trick or another. And he just did whichever trick they let him do. And the reason they didn't tumble for it was the word the the tuned deck. They were looking, as he said, for something too hard. They were looking for a hard problem, not a bunch of cheap tricks. In fact, all the tricks that they were doing were tricks that were quite familiar and in a certain way disappointing. And he hid all this with an elegant title. Now, I do want to suggest, but I don't claim to prove, that when David Chalmers talks about the hard problem, He is innocently playing a trick on himself and others of exactly this sort. He's giving a name to a problem that doesn't even really exist. The problems of consciousness are how all of the various effects work. And once you've got an account of all those effects, that's what Chalmers calls the easy problems, you're home. You've explained consciousness. Because there isn't any further problem, the hard problem, there just seems to be. So here's, again, what Hull says about the tune deck. He says, each time it's performed, the routine is such that one or more ideas in the back of the spectator's head has exploded. Sooner or later, he will invariably give up any further attempt to solve the mystery. Like many scientists and philosophers today, they just say it's mysterious, give up, it's hopeless, you can't do it. Some of us think, no, we can explain consciousness. But we have to to be alert to the fact that many people want consciousness to be mysterious. They don't want it explained. They don't want it to be like stage magic. They want it to be like real magic, in other words, the kind of magic that isn't real. So my conclusion is this, that the magic of consciousness, like stage magic, defies explanation only so long as we take it at face value. Once we appreciate all the non-mysterious ways in which the brain can create benign user illusions, we can begin to imagine how the brain creates consciousness.
3: Why don't you ask me what I'm working on?
0: Oh, very well. Uh, What have you been working on? And feel free to honk during the boring parts.
3: (laughs) I'm doing some experiments to show that the signal to move a muscle occurs before you know you even decided to move it.
0: So you're attempting to pinpoint where consciousness resides in the brain?
3: Yes. I'm trying to figure out to the nanometer and the attosecond precisely where and when an event of awareness takes place.
0: Well, what do you know? Here I was waiting to be bored with biology, and instead, you tickle my intellectual fancy. Which, unlike my body, is an okay place to tickle. (laughs) Gentlemen, the most interesting thing just happened with this spoon. Unless it was singing Be Our Guest, I doubt it. (laughs) I picked it up without thinking about it. Which raises a neuroscientific question, when did I decide to pick it up? The bigger question is, what are you going to eat with that spoon? You didn't get any food. (laughs) He does raise an interesting point. Amy is studying the time lag between intent and awareness, and I realize that applies to the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. Now, I recognize there will be a time lag between me saying that and you Googling what it means, so I'll wait. (laughs) I understand it, Sheldon. Yeah, me too. I'm sorry, I spaced. Are we still talking about the spoon? (laughs) Nice to see you digging an interest in Amy's book. Well, don't get me wrong. Neurobiology is nothing more than the science of gray, squishy stuff. But you know, when it connects to physics, you know, gas up the Ford, Martha, we're going for a drive.
2: <laughs> You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I thought I should just go back and look at some of the traditional and well-known definitions of what consciousness is. And I got this one from the Universal World Reference Encyclopedia, which was printed, like, in the middle of the last century. And all they had was, like, three quick paragraphs on the nature of consciousness. And they go thusly, quote, Consciousness is the state or condition of mental awareness, the recognition by the mind of matter and of its own acts and desires. While consciousness cannot be exactly defined, note that observation, it may be studied from a philosophical or from a psychological viewpoint. Philosophically, it may be summed up thus quote, I know that I know, I know that I feel, and I know that I desire. End quote. The act then necessarily involves one, a knowing mind, two, a known object, three, the recognition of the object by the mind. This almost reads from Ayn Rand, when I review her stuff. And finally it says, Several theories, none satisfactory, have attempted to explain the phenomenon. One maintains that every atom of the body is endowed with the material of consciousness which it emanates. Another holds that certain cells of the brain are capable, when activated, of producing consciousness. A third identifies consciousness with nerve impulses, while a fourth suggests that these impulses originate not in the nerve cells, but operate between them when the cells are energized. Well, of course, we heard some kind of variant of those options in all the previous theories that we were hearing. Now, going to a more traditional dictionary, Funk and Wagnalls, the word conscious, adjective, aware of one's own existence or of external objects and conditions aware of some object or fact, conscious of one's shortcomings, felt by oneself, internally known, self-conscious, deliberate, intentional. And I found interesting that the idea of being deliberate, of course, begs the question of free will and of determinism. But that's a topic we've discussed before and will again, I'm sure. But rest assured, free will is very real and not merely another figment of our imagination. And finally, the dictionary's definition of consciousness, the state of being conscious. Now, of course, these are definitions, not quote-unquote proofs. And we'll get into why that distinction is so critical during the closing quarter of a show today. But right now, Ayn Rand on the big problem, the mind or soul or consciousness and body dichotomy. Quote, It was man's mind that had to be negated in order to make him fall apart. Once he surrendered reason, he was left at the mercy of two monsters whom he could not fathom or control. Of a body moved by unaccountable instincts and of a soul moved by mystic revelations, he was left as the passively ravaged victim of a battle between a robot and a dictaphone. How fascinating. Those were the very two examples brought up by those lost scientists and philosophers We heard about earlier. Brand makes it very clear, You are an indivisible entity of matter and consciousness. Renounce your consciousness and you become a brute. Renounce your body and you become a fake. Renounce the material world and you surrender it to evil. And she advises that we must discard the irrational conflicts and contradictions such as mind versus heart thought versus action, reality versus desire, the practical versus the moral. We have to be integrated thinkers, thinkers who are people of action. A man of action will know that ideas divorced from consequent action are fraudulent and that action divorced from ideas is suicidal. He will know that the conceptual level of psychoepistemology the volitional level of reason and thought is the basic necessity of man's survival and his greatest moral virtue. Now you might have noticed that Daniel Dennett at the very beginning of our last audio bite, began his comment by saying, quote, I can't prove that I'm right, end quote. You know when I heard him say that? I knew he was right. Although in a strictly analytical sense. And for the final word and conclusions about what all this means, well, it always comes back to Ayn Rand, doesn't it? More on that when we return.
3: What are you working on?
0: I was thinking about your experiment on the neuroscience of decision-making, and I realized if we connect it to the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, we have a chance to disprove the role of consciousness in the Copenhagen interpretation.
3: Wait, are you saying if we combine my experiment with your calculations, we can determine the precise moment in time when the wave function collapses?
0: It could be the most inspired combination since I mix red icy into my blue icy.
3: <laughs> hey, I wonder what kind of success we'd have if we defined measurement as the first moment that an action potential is seen by the visual cortex.
0: That is a daring and insightful solution
3: finally making progress. I wish we could do it without fighting.
0: What if the fighting is the reason we're making progress?
3: I suppose it's conceivable that the hormones associated with our fight or flight response could be sharpening our cognitive processes.
0: Well, if that's the case, then your grandparents mumble and have bad posture.
3: How dare you speak that way about my Grammy? Hey, wait a second. Wait. (laughs)
1: The idea that you can somehow boil a mind, a spirit down to brain activity is just deeply repugnant to many people. People want their minds to be beyond all measure. The idea that their minds are boringly finite is not attractive. And so people want to believe that there's more and more and more and more in their mind than any science can ever tell them. One of the problems of explaining consciousness is that people think they're conscious of a lot more than they actually are conscious of. So one of the first things you have to do before doing a good theory of consciousness is you have to you have to beat consciousness back down to size. You have to get a proper account of what the phenomenon is. For instance, in vision, we tend to have the idea that we take in this whole wonderful world outside and have this inner replica of the whole world there somehow in our conscious mind and that's just not true so it seems that way but it's just not true we take in a lot less and we hold in our heads a lot less than we think and i propose some experiments in consciousness explained that would dramatically reveal this Change blindness is one of my favorite demonstrations to convince people that they don't know what they think they know about their own consciousness. If you show a person a picture and then distract them for just a brief fraction of a second, then show them a variation on that picture. you move something, you change the color of something. Very, very often people will not be able to see that change at all and one can show these pictures to people A, B, A, B, A, B with a little blank in between and people just won't see the change. Everybody in the field knew, of course, that our vision is built up piecemeal from separate fixations. Your eyes move point to point to point to point. You you pick up a glimpse here and a glimpse there and they had the idea that these glimpses were, were used to sort of tile a plane, as if to, to, to fill in this region, and then fill in that region, and then fill in this other region. And that this built up in your head a glorious big picture with all those details captured by all those individual glimpses. But in fact, you're taking a lot less than that. Uh, and that isn't all put together anywhere. It doesn't have to be all put together anywhere. All you have to do is just keep track of the things you need to keep track of to do the things you're doing, and the rest of it just isn't there. Well, I think what, what upsets people even more than the discovery that they don't know everything about their own minds, their own conscious minds, is the very idea that their mind might be a mechanism that there isn't something magical about the mind, that it's just neurons doing their ultimately electromechanical things.
2: I shall begin with Ayn Rand's analysis of this whole issue before concluding with my own. And the first thing she points out is on the whole issue of consciousness. This is an interesting thing for her to say, not maybe what you might expect such an argument to begin with, but it starts like this. Existence exists. And the act of grasping that statement implies two corollary axioms. Remember, an axiom is something that cannot be proven or disproven. And those axioms are this, that something exists which one perceives, and that one exists possessing consciousness. Consciousness being the faculty of perceiving that which exists. It's kind of unavoidable logic, isn't it? A consciousness with nothing to be conscious of is a contradiction in terms. Existence is identity. Consciousness is identification. Awareness is not a passive state. It's an active process. On the lower levels of awareness, a complex neurological process is required to enable man to experience a sensation and to integrate sensations into precepts. That process is automatic and non Man is aware of its results, but not of the process itself. On the higher conceptual level, the process is psychological, conscious, and volitional. In either case, awareness is achieved and maintained by continuous action. It is only in relation to the external world that the various actions of a consciousness can be experienced, grasped, defined, or communicated. Awareness is awareness of some thing. A contentless state of consciousness is a contradiction in terms. And I found this interesting. To form concepts of consciousness, one must isolate the action from the content of a given state of consciousness by a process of abstraction. For instance, on the adult level, when a man sees a woman walking down the street, the action of his consciousness is perception. When he notes that she is beautiful, the action of his consciousness is evaluation. When he experiences an inner state of pleasure and approval or admiration, the action of his consciousness is emotion. When he stops to watch her and draws conclusions from the evidence about her character, age, social position, etc., the action of his consciousness is thought. When later he recalls the incident, the action of his consciousness is reminiscence. When he projects that her appearance would be improved if her hair were blonde rather than brown and her dress were blue rather than red, The action of his consciousness is imagination. Now, end quote. All of those differing actions from perception to evaluation to emotion to thought to memory and all the rest, all of these are properties of consciousness. Now you go ahead and you try and define it. (laughs) See why they're having a problem? And of course the question of why can never be answered in terms of explaining cause or causation. Otherwise you end up with eternal regression in seek of a first cause. Infinite regression of causes. We've been down that path many times. But here's an observation I had to make, or that came to me when I was listening to some of these explanations. It's about pain and consciousness. They're obviously intertwined, aren't they? Because one has to be conscious to experience pain. So I was thinking small wonder that so many avoid consciousness. Because when it comes to pleasure, well, hey, then bring on our conscious experience of it, right? But when it comes to pain, consciousness becomes the enemy. It becomes something to be feared. So much so, you will have recalled, that those scientists we heard about earlier in the show, who were experimenting on the revived brain cells of pigs, were concerned enough to place those cells under anesthesia should consciousness have arisen in some way from their stimulation of the individual cells. I think that you have to grasp the simplicity of understanding consciousness. Because I think the simplicity of it lies in acknowledging, believe it or not, the complexity of consciousness. The mere fact that no one individual can possibly retain all of the complex interactions that occur simultaneously in his mind to create what we call consciousness is what makes it a mystery when it really shouldn't be. It's our ability to abstract that's the process that fills the gap. The missing link between the mind and body, you might say. And of course, there are other issues that we haven't even talked about. Effort and cognition, the act of thinking, the act of focusing, the whole act of volition, pain and pleasure, purpose and objectives, abstractions versus perceptions, tons of areas you can go into. But here is the bottom line. Both existence and consciousness are axiomatic. Neither can be further reduced to study, and they cannot be proven. They have to be accepted as the given. You have to use your consciousness to either prove or disprove consciousness, and there's no escaping that fact. And that's why it's axiomatic, and you can't disprove it. Ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? So, you know, if I could prove that existence did not exist, then my proof wouldn't exist. Same thing with consciousness. Both concepts are axiomatic, meaning not subject to proof, which is why Dennett got it right when he said he couldn't prove his case. So consciousness is part of a finite physical process, but it is far greater than the sum of its parts, yet far less than being something supernatural or something outside the possibility of physical reality. Consciousness cannot be reduced to mere calculations and scientific formulas, or even to proof, for there is none, just as there's no proof for existence. And as with all things dealing with the existence, consciousness, and, for that matter, with the future, I cannot prove that we'll be here again next week, but will nevertheless invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Into
0: color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be alright.
3: Wow, look at that. Yes, this is remarkable. So we're agreed, it's complete garbage.